You've found the place where healthcare's foremost leaders, thinkers, doers all come to share, to inspire, and to build a better healthcare world, one idea at a time. This is Patient No Longer. Welcome in. I'm Ryan Donahue, thought leader, author, and strategic advisor with NRC Health and host of Patient No Longer, the podcast in search of what's new, what's next, and what's making healthcare more human. I'm excited to be hosting in a fantastic guest. I've got Dr. Sarah Gard Lazarus with me today. Hello, doctor. Hello. It's great to have you here. It's great to have a physician perspective. You are, in fact, a physician of pediatric emergency medicine. You are passionate about injury prevention. You're a founding member of the Children's Injury Prevention Program, or CHIP, through Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. What a great cause. And in addition to the volunteer research interests, you work full-time in pediatric emergency rooms at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and Wellstar Hospitals. You have a lot on your plate, doctor, and you've got a great title to a talk that I heard, so I'm gonna start there. Everything I need to know to be a pediatric emergency room doctor, I learned as a waitress. That's correct. You have to tell us the background of that and that story. Sure, so I knew from the time I was very young that I wanted to be in the healthcare industry, really wanted to be a physician. And so I did lots of jobs to get me to that place. I mean, I worked for my pediatrician's office. I worked as an EMT. But my third year of medical school, there were a lot of bills rolling in. And sure. I decided that I should go ahead and be a waitress. And there was a steakhouse very close to where I was living for medical school. So I signed up. I surprisingly got an interview. They took me right away. And I waitressed for a year. And it was great. We always try to tie in examples from outside healthcare. In fact, NRC Health will ask people in a healthcare context to talk about other industries. And I do find such interesting parallels with restaurants. And of course, we're in 2023 where we're still sort of reemerging and searching for normal. And, you know, think about wait times, for example. I want to dig in and ask you this because the restaurant industry has done a lot of research on how long it waits before, you know, you kind of realize that you put in your order a while. And I'm sure as a waitress, you could pick up on that immediately. What's new in terms of wait times or just people's demeanor as they come into a place like the emergency room? Well, that's a great question, Ryan. And we know that wait times are a determining factor of patient family experience. And we know that 75% of patients overestimate their wait times. So making sure that we apologize right away when we come in and say, you know, we're recognizing that you've been waiting for the service, you've been waiting to be seen. And I think since COVID, you know, healthcare, it's been a struggle at times. So making sure that we are very aware of our wait times, but also aware that people are coming to us for help. We have to put down our guard and say, you know, I'm sorry. We know it's been a long time. And the stakes are so much higher than a meal, even if it's your favorite meal and you're so excited to eat out again. And I think what you say about recognizing that people are going to wait and managing that, you know, there's studies that have been done and we've done some of this work too. And my colleague, Toya Gorley, around exactly what that inflection point is where someone gets frustrated. And we know if you tell someone they will wait, that stretches out that time and gives you a little more of a buffer, not that you want them to wait. And from your point of view, when you're providing point of care, what do you notice in the differences between someone who's frustrated and they've waited too long, they've reached that boiling point, versus someone who hasn't or at least has had their wait time managed? How those differences play out? Well, I think what makes the emergency room especially challenging is because someone could come in one day for a sore throat and a fever and wait five minutes, or that same person could come in that very same day later that afternoon in the evening and wait three and a half hours. 
So it's not about what they're coming in for. It's about what the rest of the environment looks like. And I will say that a patient is going to be far more understanding and a parent is going to be far more understanding if they see a cardiac arrest roll by. But it's hard as a physician because you can't, with HIPAA, obviously say, you know what, I'm sorry you were waiting, but I was just in a drowning. Like, we just can't do that. It's managing those expectations, but also kind of realizing that they think their child has the most serious thing in the emergency room and making sure that you tell them, you know, it's all okay. And I'm sorry you waited, but we're going to make sure your child's okay. And from here on, we will do our best for you. I love the way you talk about that because I hear a lot of comments specifically about emergency departments and ERs, and, and you've heard them too where people are exasperated in trying to figure out how to improve it. And the way you lay that out, people could come in for anything. I'm gonna use an analogy here, maybe a shaky analogy, but I really trade in those, that you're almost like a restaurant that has to serve every type of food. And you've gotta cook it up and that's gonna take time and maybe you don't have all the ingredients right now. And people coming in and expecting that, you dive into that challenge. What is it about your perspective that's different than that person who says, oh, well, ignore that part of the dashboard, that's the ER. I think that really goes down to burnout and the fact that I still feel so grateful and so blessed and lucky to work the job I do. I think what we do as physicians and especially in the pediatric emergency room is a true privilege and that if we don't take that privilege for granted, we'll remember that and we'll be able to provide really the best care. But I do have colleagues that are frustrated by comments and want to ignore that part. But I always want to make sure that each of us is striving to be the best person we can be. And if we're ignoring that part of the family experience and we're just focusing on quality and safety, which are, of course, very important, we're ignoring a huge part of what the patient's feeling. And I never want to feel like I'm looking that over. You read comments. And I know this because you've used some of this and featured some of this in your work. And I have people who will never read comments. They avoid them like the plague, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent, and people saying, just ignore that comment. How do you convince others, doctors like yourself, or just anyone in healthcare, that they should, in fact, read those comments? Well, I think it's very interesting because I actually was talking to our patient experience director at our hospital at this conference, and I said, hey, why aren't we getting our comments? You're not sending them anymore. And she said, no one else wants to see them, first of all. But second of all, there's so many other drivers related to emergency room care. And so the physicians are saying, well, this isn't me. But what if 10% of those comments are you? And you can change mm -hmm. that 10%. And I think that's where I'm trying to get other physicians to realize is even if it's just 10% that applies to you, you can flush out the ones that say, I waited a long time or my room was dirty. So what? You know that doesn't relate to you. Don't let it get to you. Sure. But if there's a 10% response about your care and things you may be able to improve yourself, then that's something you should probably take a look at. Applying that filter is crucial because otherwise when people go into that and you know the bad experiences where they do take those things personally or they become overwhelmed with it because they haven't filtered those comments. And also your point about the 10%, my goodness, 1% in some ways. How often do we look at a dashboard of numbers with no words, no comments from the patient, and we think, oh, it's so tough to move these numbers without realizing that there's a secret sauce waiting for you in terms of the comments. I'm going to put you on the spot, but you're an ER doc, so you can handle it. Can you give me an example of a comment that you saw that actually changed the way that you do things? Yes, I remember very well when I was a fellow, one of my first comments 
was they didn't even listen to my heart or look in my ears. She just said it was a fever and brushed me off. And so I saw that. And of course, I don't think that was accurate. I mean, I don't remember the exact patient or the encounter, but I doubt that I would not have looked in a patient's ears or listened to their heart. But now I'm much more verbalizing of what I do. So I say, oh, the heart sounds great. The ears look good. There's no signs of ear infection. And I verbalize every part of my physical exam. And it helps cement what I've done, but it also cements to the parents that I did look at these things. I'm realizing now the things that you do that my own doctor doesn't. That's powerful. We actually did a recent insight series all about patient comments, and we had a great title around how they're good for the soul and looking at them. So we'll link to that in the description as well. But I want to go off healthcare for a second and take a break and ask you, well, one of these questions you might have actually asked quite a bit when you were working in waitressing. And, and so just a fun, like, let's learn more about you speed round. Yes, and let's do it. The doctor has not seen these yet, so I'm hitting you top of mind. <laughs> Coke or Pepsi? Coke. I'm from Atlanta. There's no choice. Ah, uh, yes. You got to rep the brand there, right. of course. How about fiction or nonfiction? Fiction. Fiction from a doctor. I love that. However, okay. I do have to do a quick plug. You want to qualify it? Okay. Yeah. My husband is a nonfiction author who's written five books. Oh, my goodness. And one of them is coming out next week called The Wingmen, focused on a Boston Red Sox person, the Ted Williams and John Glenn serving in Korea together. So I guess his books are good, but otherwise it's all fiction all the way. You have to read his books, so it's good that they're good. And we will link to that in the description as well. The more links, the better. That's really cool. Thanks. Five books. That's four more than me, and I don't know if I have the energy for another. <laughs> Speaking of energy, are you a morning person or a night owl? I'm actually a morning person. You're a morning person. That doesn't surprise me, although I'm sure you've had to work some late shifts that become the morning. I work a lot of evening shifts and afternoon and overnights, but I'm definitely my best in the morning. Okay. Favorite TV show of all time? I love horrible reality television. I'm going to go with one that's a real throwback. Making the Band with Danity Kane and P. Diddy on MTV. One of my favorites. One of my favorites. We have people that are not on record right now that are cheering you in the background very silently. Aubrey um, O'Dea wished me a happy 40th yesterday on Cameo. Happy 40th Thanks. birthday, by the way. It's not going to mean as much for me as it is from someone like Aubrey O'Day, but I know who that is, and I watched that show, and that was... All the making the bands with P. Diddy and all that were fantastic. Okay. Last one is Boston or New York? Boston. No hesitation Absolutely. at all. We've got a professional here. Okay. Well, let's go back into healthcare for a bit. You have this ability to empathize and you just shared a great example about that. I think sometimes empathy, well, two things maybe. Healthcare loves to overuse words and we've definitely done it with empathy. We've kind of driven it into the ground like we have with quality and value. And I think empathies had the same unfortunate treatment. But I also, when I do hear it get referenced, I hear it get referenced in a, yeah, it's nice to do, or it's a warm and fuzzy, but it's not strategy, or it's not something that we can focus on to change the organization. You don't think about it that way. And as a doctor, I would love to hear your perspective on empathy. Yeah, so, I mean, when I was younger, I really thought empathy was something you were given. It was a gift that you were given, and if you were empathetic, that's great, and if not, that's just not you. But something I've learned was that empathy can be cognitive, so it is something that can be taught. You know, there are psychometrically sound instruments that can be used to measure empathy, such as the Jefferson Scale of Physician Empathy, and really focusing on being able to hone those skills in learners 
whether those be nurse learners, physician learners, administrators, because we can teach things like physical exam skills. So we should be able to teach empathy as well. There are tests that can be taken on it and we need to switch and think of it not as like a God-given gift, but as something that we can learn similar to clinical exam skills. And, and in thinking of it as a gift, we assume it. And I think then it's easy for it to disappear. And I will tell you too, I've had the pleasure of seeing Dr. Lazarus talk in person and I'm gonna like become your agent now. And I'm happy to do that. You talk about this top 10, you say transferable practices that other people can use, whether they're an ER doc or not. In healthcare, they can use these things. So you have sort of this 10 commandments, if you will, of things you can do. I won't make you recite the entire list, but could you share a few of them? And of course, the first one, which I think is so simple but brilliant. Tell us a little bit more about your 10 transferable practices. So the first one I mentioned is greeting and just realizing, similar to waitressing, you're the waitress and the hostess when someone walks in. Can we get you a table? How can we help you? And really taking that pause using the patient satisfaction every time training program, taking that pause before entering, because this resets you walking into a room and remind yourself that whatever is happening outside of that room, that parent or that patient is coming to you because they're asking for your help. So really kind of resetting yourself, putting a smile on your face, introducing yourself, and asking what you can do to help, because that really is our focus. We're not focused on what are your allergies, what medications do you take, are your shots up to date, but really changing the focus into what brought you here today. What can I do for you today? I love that starter of greet. And you know, you think about other settings, and you've been good about talking about your background at a restaurant, but you think about the places that you physically like to go and have a good experience, there's a greeter or there's someone who is there to greet you, whether it's a familiar face or not, they've got a program in place to greet you. So I love that one. We have time, if you want to, to share a couple others. Another one was, I always joke, can I get you a cocktail? And that's one of my favorite ones because obviously in a restaurant, that's really key. And they love if we sell alcohol because it drives up the bill and it makes consumers happy. And obviously, we don't have a bar in the emergency room as right. much as I wish we did. Compliance as yeah, if legal got know, involved. For sure. But really, instead, focusing on what we can do to alleviate pain or suffering from patients. So, for example, in our hospital, we apply LMAX or lidocaine cream onto the child, any child that comes into the ER that may need an IV. It gets put on immediately. So it's decreasing their wait times if we need to get an IV, and it's decreasing their pain if we have to stick them. And we know that pediatric pain, at least, is highly undertreated. So really focusing on making sure that a parent is not stressed by their child's cries of pain. Also using some light anxiolysis, if we will, or, or sedatives, midazolam, is all really helpful to kind of help a child not feel as much pain. I'm glad that you brought up the children's perspective specifically. We do an annual pediatric collaborative, and we've shared data around parents because you have this whole other piece of this, they're like the patient too, and you have to manage that, especially when you're caring for children. In healthcare, are there misconceptions? Are there things that we get wrong about pediatrics? I'm just curious from your perspective, the importance of pediatrics in the general scheme of things. Because sometimes we put it off on a little bit of an island when in fact you have children, but you have people of all ages that support that child, hopefully in those situations, who are also really wrapped up in that care. I think because so many times our patients may not be verbal or may not be able to talk as much as an older, obviously, a patient would, 
you really have to listen to the parents just as much as you listen to the patient. And I always tell the parents, you know your child best. We appreciate you coming here today. And I think we forget that often as physicians because people get frustrated with the parents because they're bringing up issues that maybe are pertinent. But there's a reason they came to you and really bringing the parent into that shared decision-making and into that problem-solving and getting them on your page is incredibly important. You started with listening, and we did a study recently. In fact, we haven't shared this in a widespread manner yet, but of people who really felt a good bond with their physician, and that's what patients want. Number one thing they wanted their physician to do was listen. And the feeling of if you don't do that, you might be wonderful technically and doing all the right things clinically, but how do you really provide me care? Have you noticed any differences I mean, you've been in the thick of this during COVID. Is there a difference in patients in 2023 post-COVID, or do you see a lot of the same things that you saw in 2019? I'm just curious. Yeah, that's a hard question. I mean, I think there's a lot more anxiety and mental health in patients, both pediatric and adult. And because the mind-body connection is so very strong, you know, there are increased problems that are what we call somatic, or maybe there's belly pain that's actually related to stress and anxiety and going back to school. So although, of course, our job is to rule out really severe life-threatening things, I spend a lot of time talking about the mind-body connection and how, you know, definitely, even if there is pain going on, and of course we believe there's pain, you know, if our mind doesn't know how to handle the pain, things can quickly kind of spin out. That's such a great connection, and you do a good job of connecting that back. I think people can learn to better balance those things now that we didn't focus on before. Let's say in that ER, maybe your shift has ended, whatever time of day it is, you bump into someone else who's on day one. This is their first day in healthcare. What is a piece of advice in, on a short elevator ride that you would give that person on their first day? I would say never lose your passion. Because if you have that and you have the drive to be better, you will always work to be the best you can. And that's key. Wow. I mean, they could go one floor and hear that from you, but it's very inspirational. And I think we could all learn from you, Dr. Lazarus, and your approach of not getting burnout and being intensely involved in improving care is fantastic. And like I said, as your agent, you've got a great talk. Everything I need to know to be a pediatric emergency room doctor, I learned as a waitress I have a feeling you're going to be doing a lot more talking about this topic in the future, and we're here to support you however we can because we really appreciate you taking time today. Thank you, and thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Anytime. And thank you, everyone, for listening. This concludes this episode of the Patient No Longer podcast, and we will talk to you next time. And that's the show. Thank you for joining us today as we exchange ideas, share struggles, and celebrate triumphs. Come back next month as we continue our journey through the magical and maddening world of healthcare. Never miss a show. Subscribe at nrchealth.com slash patient no longer or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Ryan Donahue, and you've been listening to Patient No Longer, a presentation of NRC Health, the founders and lead architects of human understanding in healthcare. Until next time. Jason Brown, CEO and Chief Strategy Officer of marketing services firm BPD, joins us on the next episode of Patient No Longer to explore consumer connections to healthcare. The essence of healthcare isn't really just the health part, which we focus on, but it's the actual delivery of care as an action. And the reality of caring for me, like this idea of to care as human, 
emerges from who we are, specifically as human beings caring for human beings. It's an innate and built-in part of our human DNA. You don't want to miss my conversation with Jason. Subscribe and follow Patient No Longer wherever you get your podcasts.